Thank you for being here. The use of a land acknowledgement is to honor and acknowledge my presence on the traditional lands of our First Nations peoples. It was a practice by First Nations people when traveling through other nations' territories as a sign of respect. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which extends between Montreal and Fort Erie. It was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory and one spoon to represent that the people are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land, and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with all those that fight for justice on behalf of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ+, and two-spirited people. I grieve the generational trauma created by the residential school system and the 60s scoop. I grieve the children and childhoods lost through ignorance and racism. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. I feel incredibly fortunate to have had this conversation with Dr. Lanisha Adams. Her warmth, compassion, humor, intellect, and determination is inspiring. And she's now sharing her hard-won lessons of perseverance and resilience with aspiring academics and non-traditional students to great effect. Thank you for listening. This is episode 35. Cool. I never knew about those settings. There you go. You learned something. I'm glad I was able to teach you something today. <laughs> hey, I learn something new every day. It's amazing. I love it. It was fun uh, meeting you the other day and the cousin of Dwayne Johnson. You must get bugged about that all the time. Not all the time, but every time I love it. Every single time. <laughs> it's like, you're from Samoa. Who else do I know from Samoa? <gasps> oh my God, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> For those who don't know, it's The Rock. Yes. Um, so I have an intro for you. Feel free to correct me as I go along. Dr. Lanisha Adams, you are a sister, a daughter, mother, author, academic, and entrepreneur. You were a first-generation college student and the very first in your family to obtain a PhD. Through your experiences defending your doctoral thesis, you identified a need to help doctoral candidates get through the often cutthroat world of academia. Because of your experience juggling multiple commitments as a non-traditional student, you understood the unique needs of students trying to complete their degrees while working full-time, parenting, caretaking family members, and who are first-generation residents in the U.S., you have parlayed your empowerment and self-mastery techniques into a successful business as an educational consultant and dissertation coach. To date, you've coached 76 students to complete their graduate degree. Welcome to the arena, Lanisha. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. You have accomplished an incredible amount. People can't see your face, but you are a relatively young woman, from my perspective anyway, from my advanced years. And um, I was speaking to another woman who had done her PhD, and she just flat out said, it's amazing to be outside of that world of academia. It's so incredibly cutthroat. It's just remarkable. You would think the world of higher learning would be embracing. It would be fostering of people coming through, but I guess this competition is competition. Yeah, I think more than competition, it has a lot to do with ego. There are a lot of eggheads in this environment. You're getting (laughs) a PhD and you're so smart. And I think intelligence is a key piece to that, but more than being smart is how hard you can work and how much they put you through what they call this academic hazing. And my assessment of it is pretty much folks who are in positions of power, their ego is overriding their humanity. Mm. And my favorite self-quote is that our ego is never bigger than our humanity. And Mm. I can only imagine if that wasn't at play in those higher ed spaces, it'd be a totally different kind of ball game. But someone said to me that it really comes down to not everyone can get it and the competition piece. But I think there's another layer that is beyond the regular competition. And that's how much can you survive whatever they're going to do to you. And because the folks on the committees have experienced it as students, then they recreate it as educators instead of changing it. It's like a very crazy infrastructural problem. In our earlier conversation, we talked about there's a similar kind of mindset when you look at the legal profession, medicine, et cetera. Well, I went through it, so it's payback for those people who are coming through. I'm highly sensitive to it. And when coaching doctoral students, it's who's catching them, who's holding them, Mm -hmm. because those kinds of dynamics can tear people apart and It's not just, oh, you critique my research. It's you're doing something to the core of me. And that's going to demotivate or motivate, encourage, discourage. And while folks can get through, some get stuck in this sort of middle place of how do I move forward? I'm not sure. And then there's fear because you hear stories and then you're like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. So you, if you're busy and you have a lot of things going on, it's like this holding pattern, which is, is so interesting to see play out. And it's extremely unfortunate. And I, I had experienced it myself. So I, I understand it oh so well. The pressure of just completing your studies is big enough. You start to layer a new parent or looking after your elderly parents at home or sick brother or sister, being new to the country, new to the culture holding down a job, and the intense pressure that you're under. Your first generation in higher learning, never mind being a a doctoral student. And so that's just insane. I had a client tell me that she was going to wait for her sister to die before she could do the next phase of her research. Man. Can you imagine? And the professor wasn't working with her. So she lost a year right? She paid and kept going. 
but that was one of my clients and just meeting with her every other week during that time to distract, to have something that she was working towards, even as the university community was dismissive of her. She's still going after it, but this is taking her a while, longer, much longer, because she has to caretake someone who passed and the sister did pass. And so I just think when we're talking about higher education, it's like your statement at the very beginning is so crucial because why are people doing this? They're doing it to better themselves and their lives in some kind of way. But it's the betterment of self, of who the person is that needs to be made whole. Like these institutions shouldn't crush folks. It should uplift. But who makes up the institutions? It's not an amorphous thing. People Mm -hmm. make it up. So I feel like in my critique and examination of what I see as a root cause is really that emotional intelligence component. But if we can't change the dynamics of university professors, the the bad actors, because there are some really great supportive faculty members that we want to shout out and uplift and acknowledge. And then there are some bad actors there. But there should be a focus on when folks are getting this degree that's to improve their life, whether it's at the undergraduate or graduate level, how do they stay whole or be made whole throughout this process? Because a part of you changes, part of your identity shifts. You then take on this new academic sort of identity. What does that mean in relation to like where I come from, right? In the hood and in Long Beach is where I grew up. And my parents had me when they were teenagers and Mm -hmm. my dad doesn't have a high school diploma. So for me, an academic identity, that's not rooted in a familial sense. That is social capital that I build, that I leverage, that I use. But coming from where I come from, that's a different thing. Now that I have children and I am creating my own family unit, it's an interesting duality to constantly examine and question and say, okay, how am I moving the needle in a different way and not recreating some of these structures that really don't uplift people, that oppress people? Mm -hmm. Take me back to dinner conversations in your household as you were growing up. What did that look like? Oh man, that's a really great question. Well, if I was with my mom, it was quiet. She emphasized a lot of reading and silence. She liked doing puzzles and she liked these word games. She's really big into language. And I was an only child until I was 13 years old. But if we were with other family, my mom was a teen mom, but she had a village raising me. So my great grandparents, her grandparents, my grandfather had uh, five other siblings. So his siblings, they all lived in the same area all over Los Angeles County. And then they would you know, drive to each other's house and we would go there. And my mom is the youngest. And then she had me. I'm the oldest of that generation. And it was just so cool to talk to them, these elders. And they would say, oh, you know, you have to stay in the books. You have to really be focused on school. And not to force me, but they knew that I had a passion for it from a very early age. And my mom, she always says that she wasn't very good at reading and actually she's not very good at language. She always says herself, but Mm. because she wasn't good at it, she focused on it for me. 
So then she said that I was a quick learn. So then she just helped me do that. I started reading when I was four. She taught me, but she won't claim that she did. For someone who barely graduated high school to teach their kid to read at the age of four, that's pretty amazing to me. And so a lot of the conversations with adults would be, what was I reading? Because my mom always made sure that I was going to the library. I asked probably a thousand annoying questions and she didn't know the answer. There was no Google. (laughs) And so she would say, go look it up, go find it out. And I was always thinking, wow, that's super annoying. And then I go read and she say, what did you read? Because she didn't know. And I didn't know that she didn't know. I mean, your parent, you don't think of their limitations. You only are like, they're making me do all this stuff. And so that's amazing. Thinking about that question of what did we talk about at the dinner table? They'd have their adult conversation. Oh, this kid is here. What are you learning? And I'd tell them all these weird stuff I'm learning. They're like, what games are you playing? I'd make up games. I made up this game called Black Jeopardy. That was like, man, that was a hot game. <laughs> oh, oh, rest in peace, Alex Trebek. Listen, that was my stuff right there. And SNL, this was before these skits. And I never watched SNL as a child, but... Listen, I was coming up with all this and I would incorporate cultural things. And then I incorporate things that I would read about black affluent people. And my great grandfather, he was especially in love with this. He loved it. I had my index cards. I'd tell my mom, like, my mom would be like, let's go to the dollar (laughs) store. Get your index cards. I run out of it. And I I wanted different colors because I had different categories. Man, I was like at seven. I was all about Black Jeopardy. It was amazing. And I got everybody to play. That was the most amazing part because, you know, my great grandmother, she was always busy doing some cooking or doing something. Everybody played. Every person played. So, yeah, those were a lot of our dinner table conversations growing up. Fantastic. Love it. (laughs) I I, I hope you improved upon the music, though. (laughs) Totally. We had us. We had Coltrane. That was my music. (laughs) But, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to recreate that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What event in your life had the most profound impact on you? A quick sidebar. Lanisha mentions Chomsky during our conversation. Noam Chomsky is sometimes called the father of modern linguistics and is one of the founders of the field of cognitive science. Man, that is one I think about every single week. It's amazing. Aline Jindian, my ninth grade English teacher, she introduced me to... Dan Bates, who ran, who was the department chair. And she said, oh, I think you should talk to him about your interest in language. Because I knew at 13 that I wanted to get a PhD in linguistics and become a linguistics professor after reading Chomsky. This, okay, so this is weird because this is what happens when you go to the library and that's your social place. I wanted to be an architect, but I didn't have the skill. My mom's skills in math and drawing and visual learning, super, super high. And she has a language facility that is off the charts. But she would see me trying to draw buildings and stuff. And she gave me these blueprint books. And she's like, look, you ain't good at that. That's heartbreaking. I was like, I want to be an architect. And so my mom was encouraging me to try to go and figure out what you need to do it. So we went to the library, the librarian told me, got this really complicated book for blueprints. So then instead of being like, oh, I, maybe I could build the skill, I was like, forget this. I'm not choosing that. <laughs> and I was sad. I was like, I'm so yeah. lost. I don't know what I'm going to pick. And the librarian started asking me, what do you really love? And I'm like, oh, I love languages. My dad is from this country. We have these neighbors. They speak Spanish. I really love this. And so she's okay. It sounds like you, you really love the science of language. I was like, what's that? Linguistics. She puts me in the section. 
And then off I go. And then I found Chomsky randomly. No one told me anything. And I was like, this blueprint for language? I was like, I'm on to something here. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know to look when it was published. This book was published in like 1950. I think by the time I'm in high school, I'm like, what else can I read? But so my teacher, she was like, you need to talk to the department chair and talk to him. So then he walks me over to, to the career center. We're talking. He's I think you need to apply for this scholarship. And it was the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation scholarship. Turns out that I can't apply because you have to be a senior in high school. So I started thinking, what if I spent the next four years trying to do whatever I needed to do? And lo and behold, uh, four years later, ended up getting that uh, scholarship. And it's significant because it was a 10-year scholarship specifically designed to get all the way from undergrad to PhD. And that resource would be really great for my life and for me and help me achieve this goal. So Aline Jindian, who is my friend, who will probably listen to this, She's freaking amazing. And that event changed my life, like hands down. Amazing. And teachers have such a profound impact on young people and probably often don't know what impact they have, where they intersect a young person, a young mind with something that ends up really changing their lives whether it's a conversation or as you say, an introduction or a book or whatever it is. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. And what does living courageously mean to you? I think it means when you're nervited, (laughs) nervous and excited, you do the damn thing regardless. You don't even know what's on the other side of it and you just do it anyway and you see what happens. That's what it means to me. It's so hard to do, but that's what it means to me. I think it helps partially to have this vision and then you're going to do something you don't know what the hell it is. You don't know what's on the other side and you have this idea. And then the minute you're doing it, you're like, what? And then you start panicking and then you keep going. That happened to me. I <laughs> Somebody told me, go get a passport. I go get a passport. I'm like, where am I going? I don't have money. And then I learned about studying abroad and I had the scholarship. My university had a partnership with England, the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, which is an hour north of Manchester. And I was like, okay, great. They have linguistics. I could study. Oh, I was like nerding out. Oh, English linguistics from a British perspective. And as an American, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. So I do all the stuff, figure out all the money. Cause that was my main concern. It's like, how am I going to afford this? How am I going to do it? How am I going to study? So once that was sorted out, that's all I thought about. That's I didn't think about, you don't know any people. You're going to be, you're leaving yeah. California and going to the north of England. What? All I, I bought a coat. I was like, I got a pea coat from L.L. Bean. And I was like, I'm ready. And Birkenstocks. I was like, that's all I knew. And so then I'm on the plane. I had never flown out of the country before. And I had a panic attack on the plane. I started freaking out and I was sweating. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, and mind you, it's two hours into the flight and something happened. I started thinking, what am I doing? Get off this plane. And I just started hyperventilating. The flight attendant came and they gave me the little bag and they were like, ma'am, you know, are you feel, I was like, no, I feel so sick. I, you know, I try not to be in that space. And if I am, it's in behind closed doors. So I'm freaking out because I'm freaking out. And everybody's like trying to help me. And I start throwing up and the lady sitting next to me is all, all squirming. Oh, God. oh it was awful. 
And it was fear. It was this false evidence appearing real. Like, how could you be even thinking you could leave California? You need to go back. You live by the beach. Like, your life is fine. Why would you want to go to England? It's cold there. You don't know anything. Maybe I should have thought about some of them before I got to the plane. <laughs> but it, I think it really helps push you. If you can control your focus on, hey, I want this experience. What are the smallest steps I could take to get that? Everything else falls into place. And that was my operational belief. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, I am human just like everybody else. And I have fear. One of my friends said to me, oh, you're so fearless. You have no fear. You just do whatever you want. And I was like thinking, are you crazy? I do it even when I'm afraid. And they didn't understand me because I maybe didn't articulate well. But right now in this moment, I'm saying there is something about when you have that feeling and it's the first thing you want to do is go back to your comfort zone. Why would you choose something else? Look at what's on the other side of it. I can't even tell you the impact of that on my life. Maybe because I went and I got a sense of the world and universe outside of my small place in Southern California, I I then came back and then I was like, I want to go away again. And I went to Mexico for another study abroad, which means that I spent five years as an undergrad. But I didn't care because I was like, wow, I can maximize this opportunity. When am I going to be protected in that space with funding and with support and with, while studying? And I picked some really cool opportunities to, to maximize my learning. But I did feel those feelings. And I don't think about them. But in this moment, I'm reflecting on it and, and just remembering, gosh, I had no idea what I was doing, but I did it anyway. I think every student should try and be away from home if they possibly can to embrace that experience. What has stopped you from pursuing your goals? Hmm. I'm pausing because I don't think anything stopped me from pursuing it. Right now I have major barriers. I have a looming book deadline. I'm actively seeking solutions for childcare in the evenings and on the weekends to help me out. And I think in this new transition of being a mom to a 10-month and a almost three-year-old, it's so difficult to manage that need to raise another human and care for them and not just help them survive, but to help them thrive, right? I want them to be the best of who they are and as free as they possibly can. Because let's face it, the older you get, the more restricted it becomes until you retire or whatever. And so I'm like... I want them to be as free, as crazy as they possibly can. And that's a lot of work, actually. I think it's more work than forcing them to be convenient for me, which is a different way. So that is a big struggle that I have a lot of challenges there. And then I think I think I really struggle also with self-care, like putting myself first when it comes to fitness and other health things, because sometimes I think I'm like a computer or I have fantasies. Do you, did you ever watch the Jetsons show? (laughs) Yes. Oh man, that was my stuff. And you know how they have a pill for food and you don't have to waste your time cooking. I think part of my brain thinks, oh yeah, let's keep going. And then you run the vessel down and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? What's happening to me? So I'm improving in that area, but I'm work in progress constantly. And I just keep going. You know, I try to, when we have these limitations, I try to embrace those barriers and really identify them so that I can 
come up with strategies to utilize my strengths to move past them. And I think that's a really good recipe for breaking through some of those barriers. What impact do you want to have on the world? You come in with these heavy hitting questions. <laughs> um, Aline Jindian's my shiro. I don't have very many, actually. I think I only have one. And, and I want to have an impact like that in the world where she's still a teacher. And every day I know she's like affecting kids in the same way that she affected me and my friends. 22 years later, people are still talking about what you did in the class because of your energy, because of your passion, because of so many things that you, you showcase that is like the essence of who you are. I want to have an impact where I can help people fully be that, like fully who they are, authentically representing and showcasing 100%, 100% of the time and in a fearless way where you don't focus on those things that might seemingly hold you back. You just do it anyway and do you and be you. I, I really would love to have that as part of something I do in life. And I try to, I think I try to, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like it. You've got 76 students whose lives you've changed already. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, thinking about it. Yeah, it's hard. It's exactly what we were saying about her. You don't really know unless they tell you, unless they circle mm -hmm. back and say, hey, like you really had this change in my life. And I think if I tell her, if I tell Aline, she's so humble and so beautiful. And it's amazing that someone is like that. Now, imagine if at every level of education, you had a human like that. Oh, absolutely. The ripple effect of those positive voices and forces. There's so many lessons from this time of pandemic. And when you think about the single life, and the ripple of the people that are affected by the loss of that person, the loss that the world has had as a result of that person no longer being there, who could be your teacher, who could be you, and how they are no longer there to be that pebble and send out that ripple. We have to hang on to those lessons and really understand what we've gone through and, and then being the force for good going forward as much as we can. Mm -hmm. So understand, Dr. Adams, the force that you are in the world. Thank you. You're welcome. What would you do on your last day? I, okay, I'm going out and I know I'm going out. We're going to have a dance party. Then we're going to dance for like a long time, like two, three hours in a row. Like we're just going to have nonstop dance party with the best DJs, plural DJs. I want to do virtual and in person. I want to do crazy stuff. Then when you work up a hunger because you've been exercising and sweating. So then you go into this like sauna place and you get clean and you relax and you go. And then there's going to be a hot tub. You have private soaks and you can have public ones, whatever your preference is. I want to be with people. I don't want to just be by myself. I want to live it up with the other souls. So we're going to have this hot tub experience and then, boom, 
We're going to have a major feast. I want to eat all the best foods. Oh, the best foods. Like all the all the best soul food, all the best Japanese food, all the best Thai food, all the best Samoan food, all the best every food I could ever. All oh, these, man. Persian food. Oh, my gosh. I would eat, like, so, so much. And then I'd want to have some libations and, uh, and just relax and then go out. That, that's how, and I want to be with people that I love and care about, even ones who aren't even alive anymore. I want them to appear back magically. And I don't know if this is a realistic question or not, but hey, if I can have that, if I if I can have that, that'd be amazing. And then, fiend. <laughs> You've got five minutes to have a conversation with someone, living or dead. Who would that be? I've known too many people that died. I'm like competing so it's between reika yani who was one of my like really awesome friends she died way too young at the young age of 36 some mm-hmm. years ago and uh, i'd want to have a conversation with her just about life and kids and but then i'm like oh there's barbara sykes who was one of my really close friends 50 years older than me mm-hmm. and we met in college at cal state san marcos and she was doing like classes and stuff and we became really good friends and I'd love to get her perspective. She died before the pandemic just a year or so ago. And I would love to hear what she has to say. So funny. And actually, I, if one person, forget it. Both of them in one conversation for five minutes. Oh, it'd just be wonderful. It'd be wonderful. But I get elements of what they would say or what they have said from before. Reka wrote me a really beautiful card with a Sousa quote about how it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm-hmm. And inside one of the last things that she sent me, it was when I left New York City to go live in New Mexico. And it's the most, I read those words randomly and that they're so timely and so pertinent. And then Barbara Sykes and I, we would just share so many stories. And every time I think about life and what helps me get out of tricky situations or bad moods, it's these funny stories. It's like the most random, the most funny, just like simple things. And uh, yeah, that's what I'd say to that that question. That's a good one. These are zingers. (laughs) Nothing like making a a linguist speechless. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Any final thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up? I would love for people, when they're thinking about hey, what am I doing with my life? For them to just reflect and go deeper. And this idea that we have everything that we need within us is something that I'm becoming more and more passionate about each and every day. So I leave the listeners with that. And I really encourage folks to just tap into what I'm calling this me power and to flex that as strongly as they can at every level of their life. That that would be my, my message if I had a soapbox to stand on. I mean, that's at the center of what your business is about and the work that you're doing. Yeah. So I think like this idea that people come to me when they're stuck at their dissertation phase. They've finished their coursework. They are amazing. They have this research and they don't know what to do next. And they're frozen. Like these, and some of the people are amazing. They run 
universities, they run their businesses, they have families, they take care of their sick parents. And I'm thinking, why don't you know what to do? And part of it is that they're frozen, they're stuck in this space related to this thing, right? They're doing fine in other aspects of their life. And there is something, this disconnect from, I have this goal, I don't know how I'm going to get there. And I think wherever, however I'm going to get there is outside. My job as a guide, as a coach, is to help folks reconnect with what's within them, the power that resides there first. And there is something that happens to us to cause disconnects. And the reconnecting is I'm not doing that. The client is doing that. But I can help guide them because I've struggled with the same thing. I'm a work in process, a work in progress myself. And I learn just as much as I'm teaching in this kind of given uh, share process, promotores learning environment is what the Mexican folks would say. And I definitely think that this give and take, this learning and sharing that folks aren't getting in some of these higher ed spaces that they pay their tuition. They're promising that they're going to do what they need to get out. And the university isn't doing their job and they have to seek a source on the outside. And I think everyone needs to go back inside, but you can't always go it alone. And that is like such a paradox. I have to go inside while I'm talking and consulting and dealing with others. I think someone asked me recently, why would I do that? When I could just be with the people and they can advise me and they can tell me. And I'm like, the thing you're just listening constantly what someone else thinks. What do you think? What do you feel? What do you want for your life? What are choices you going to make? And I think we should have answers for those, but they should be our own answers. We can look to someone else and someone else's life story, but how are you going to write your own autobiography for your own life? That's mm -hmm. what we, I fundamentally believe. That's what we're here for. And that's what I help people to do and to remember and to use that to propel into the next thing that they want. In this very narrow case, it's PhD land. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of ways, it's it impacts them beyond that schooling experience. Mm -hmm. The process of learning to think, just from an intellectual development standpoint, there isn't, uh, generally speaking, unless you come across an extraordinary educator, where there is that sort of development of the individual self, because they're trying to get us all to show up at the same time in the same place and hand in your essay. So that process of learning to think for yourself and developing your own self and your own points of view, then you go through university, et cetera, and you're lectured at and, okay, now we want you to think and come up with ideas. What? How do I do that? And there's got to be that crisis of, of self to say, what do you mean I have to come up with some original thoughts or points of view on topic X, which has been written about for potentially centuries? Yeah, absolutely. I had a client just say to me, where people get really stuck is with a literature review exactly what you described. All these people written about this topic, all of this things, what do you say that's so unique and uh, like different? 
have you considered? I said to my client that you, in your own body, <laughs> have, and what your voice isn't really represented in these studies. Have you considered that? Oh, how would I? What's your research question? It has something to do with that. And then she says, what am I supposed to say about the articles? Aren't I supposed to just summarize them? No, you could, but that would be very boring. So you make the case for why your research is necessary. And then she says, but that requires me to actually say what I think. And I was like, yeah. And I am afraid to say what I think because I don't think that it's very valued because my voice has never been represented in these articles. So who am I to even suggest that something's missing? Yeah. That was a very hard conversation, but it's exactly what you were getting at. Uh, this idea that you reach a point where you are looking and negotiating. I have all this experience and lived experience, which is very powerful. And I'm looking in these studies for some representation of that. It's not there because it's not a priority. It's not a focus. My demographic isn't prioritized. You would want to make a case for that. And to think you can't even make a case because you don't know if it's going to be valued, if your professor even cares, if they're going to mark it up, if they're going to say, nope, go back with a different topic and a different idea, which they sometimes do. And I just think, wow, like that's a lot to combat to then keep moving beyond. So there's more to say there about higher education and all the madness that happens. But I, I definitely think that this knowledge of self-peace is fundamental. You really have to have that as a foundation, reflection, and the self, it should be selves because we're evolving and changing over time. So mm -hmm. who you were, who I was 22 years ago, wow, come on, who were you 22 years ago? Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, so we're like, wait a minute, what is this? And who I am at different checkpoints. But the essence of me, I think is still the same. It's still that 13-year-old girl with a love for language, a love for food, appreciation of cultures, and someone who just likes to have a good time and be with people. Mm-hmm. And an appreciation for family. Mm -hmm. I had such a, a clear sense of the the lineage in your family and the passing on of story and an appreciation for story and culture and how you're carrying that through and really seeing people for who, who they are individually as opposed to you're one of a many, this classroom. I, I just get a sense of a real understanding of individualism. So... Thank you for that. Thank you for being you. Thank you. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask me before we wrap up? Yeah, I'm just curious in the people that you interview, do you do you see patterns across conversations that you've had? Hmm. Everybody has some sort of way of speaking to themselves in the moment of doubt, in the moment of fear to get themselves through. So there's, I suppose, some patterns, but I, I'm speaking to people from, and purposefully from diverse backgrounds, but also diverse moments of courage or ways of being courageous or reasons for being courageous. Some of it is self-imposed, some of it is circumstantial. I think there's 
an understanding that it's just you in the arena of your life, of whatever that moment is or those circumstances are, and that there's a sense of just keep moving forward because that stillness will allow that fear or that self-doubt or whatever's chasing you is to catch up with you. But that sense of either physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually moving forward, marching forward allows you to succeed and get to the other side. Wow. I am so grateful to be having this conversation with you. It's Man, it's enriched me so much, and I really value the connection. So thank you. I will be very thoughtful after this uh, conversation. So thank you so much, and I, I really look forward to sharing this with the listeners. I have shared how to find Lanisha in the show notes. You can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, or Clubhouse at edlinguist. That's E-D-L-I-N-G-U-I-S-T, or on her website at www.edlinguist.com. She's happy to talk about ways to complete a graduate degree, but she's also happy to talk about ways to collaborate, strategize, and disrupt systems that oppress people. End of story. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. If you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. They always make my day. Do you know someone whose story I should share? Feel free to reach out to me via my website or email. Linda at lindamclaughlin.com. I'll put it in the show notes. I look forward to sharing my next guest story of completing his self-imposed 100 days of courage. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in the arena. <laughs>